Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thank you so much for joining us. Mike Reno is the frontman for the multi-platinum, award-winning Canadian band Loverboy. During the 80s and 90s, Mike toured extensively with the band, releasing a string of mega-hits including Turn Me Loose, Hot Girls in Love, and Working for the Weekend, to name just a few. Mike has also contributed to numerous film soundtracks, most notably Almost Paradise with the film Footloose, and Heaven in Your Eyes for the massively successful film Top Gun. Mike has won numerous awards, including multiple Junos, and he was inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame in 2009. And today, Mike joins us from his home in Vancouver, British Columbia for a very intimate look back at his career and to bring us up to speed on what he's working on next. How's it going, buddy? I'm great. How great. are you? Okay, so we were talking before we connected with you, um, and Scott had asked me, where, like, when did we meet? And I was thinking 1978 at the Airline Hotel in Calgary. Wow. You see, that goes back further than I remember. Because like, Calgary days are a bit of a blank just because of the consumption of alcohol. <laughs> now, would would you have been in Moxie in 78 or Spunk? <clears throat> I joined Moxie in 78. Okay, so it was right around that time. Pardon me. I left Moxie in 78. And so, but when did you join up with Paul? Around 79? The end of 78. Oh, so, okay. So Paul, so Paul was already out of street art by then. We're talking about Paul Dean, by the way, people. So, yeah, but yeah, Paul was out of street art and it was, a, you know, kind of a bit of a weird kind of exit for him. I don't even care. Gary Stratichuk came to one of our shows in, in Phoenix. We were playing at the, uh, the Sun Stadium with the Who. Right. And a security guy came back. You know, the Sun Stadium is huge, right? Yeah, yeah. And security guy came back. He said, I have a, a person who says he knows you in the band. And I said, who's that? And he goes, a Gary Stratichuk. And I said, well, walk me over to him. So I walked over to him and I said, officer, arrest this man and get him off the premises. <laughs> <laughs> the officer cuffed him and took him out of there. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. Oh my God, that's hilarious. I thought you were kidding. No, I didn't want the guys to see Gary because apparently he, he screwed him up pretty pretty royally. That's what I heard. Yeah, it was really, but you know, in, in a way, it worked out as an incredible blessing for Paul and for you. Absolutely. Because well, yeah, you can't write a better a better story than that, really. Yeah, exactly. So why don't we take it from there? So Paul ha was in Great Canadian Ritter Race with Matt Frenette. And I tried that band, by the way. You did, eh? You want to go way back? Yeah. Well, hey, okay, let's go way back. You are you from you from the Okanagan? Yeah, I'm from Dicton. Yeah. Okay, you were born and raised there. Uh, I was born in Victoria, but you raised in uh, uh, Penticton after the grade after grade four. We moved. Oh, okay, okay. So, and when did you start singing? When did you? Well, you were a drummer at first, weren't you? I was a drummer. I bought my first set of drums uh, when I was eleven. Okay. Uh, I had a paper route. I delivered the colonist in the morning and after school, and then I went to school. And then after school, my brother sh showed me how to make a bit of coin. So he says, what we're going to do is we're going to buy some newspapers for 10 cents a piece. We'll get 10 of them each. 
and you stand in front of Eaton's, I'll stand in front of the bay, and you just yell Times paper. It's the afternoon paper in Victoria, right? Right. Back. And so uh, I think I was so cute, they throw me a quarter for a 10 cent paper, right? So next thing you know, I had enough money to buy a set of drums. Wow, what a great story. <laughs> yeah. So, so you moved to uh, the Okanagan when you're, I guess, nine or 10. No. Yeah. No, no, I was probably in 12. Yeah. Great. Okay. Just with your grade five, to be honest. And, and, and you start playing in bands as a teenager, I take it? Uh, yeah. Actually, my brother got me into his bands. Um, if people would like, he, when they used to rehearse, I used to sit there like a puppy dog watching these guys. And I, rem I, I memorized all the songs and I was singing harmonies to them and I could play the drums. So I learned all the parts. And I don't know. I just took it upon myself to do this. And then the drummer left one weekend and my brother's band had two shows up in uh, Midway and Greenwood, Green or something or other, up that way, you know, towards uh, Nelson and all that. Okay. So I remember my dad pulled uh, a U-Haul behind the Oldsmobile and we all drove together and it was... Uh, a show, I was 13 years old, I was behind the drums, singing background harmonies. And you couldn't even see me back there because the tom-toms and stuff were set up. And that was how it started. We went to, it, during the break, we went and sat in the Oldsmobile with the old man and he passed a big, some little stubby beers around to everybody. <laughs> of course, I didn't really like beer back then, but I gave it to the bass player. What else, right? <laughs> <laughs> I met... I met your brothers. Well, well, one of your brothers sadly is not with us anymore. He passed away. Uh, yeah, I had a, we had a bit of a bad bad run with the family members. Uh, my younger brother passed away in, in 1990. Um, it was just a horrible car wreck. So, and then my older brother died four years ago. So, yeah, Steve, well, he was the guy who got me into music business. Yeah, I remember. I remember both your brothers actually. And I remember when the younger one died, of course, I didn't know that Steve had passed away, but. Yeah, it was pretty sad. Pretty sad, actually. And then mom passed away two months ago. It's like, I'm the last Mohican. Wow, wow. Yeah, I know what you mean. Starting to feel a little, little orphany. Yeah, I hear you. Um, uh, okay, so you're, you're in, you're in Kelowna. When, and when did you, so when you were started singing right away, I guess. Like, oh, by the way, Mick, if we go back to the Okanagan days, this may take more than one hour, I guarantee you. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's, well, so you start singing, you're playing drums. And so when do you start sort of making it where you're sort of playing, you're actually playing for money? Let's put it there. Okay. I had a band in, uh, in the Okanagan, my first band was called the Bash Boys. And the only reason it was called the Bash Boys is the set of drums I had used real hides and I didn't, and, and the certain size of the bass drum. So I broke the, you know, one of the, one of the, the, the heads. So I turned, I put it on the outside and it was all, it all wrinkled up, you know, like, you know, like a cannonball f flew through it. So I put red paint around the outside and called ourselves the Bash Boys. I don't know, it's crazy stuff. And then from there, I, I had a band called Morning Glory. Okay. And while I was in the band Morning Glory, a group called the Great Canadian River Race came through town and they were trying out singers. And I tried out at, at the age of 16. And I, I, I was kind of a toothpick back then. And... Uh, 
I don't even think I shaved. And I sang my ass off, but I didn't get the job. <laughs> right. It's not funny. Okay, so so now, um, and so wasn't, wasn't Moxie or Spunk, weren't they based out of Toronto, or were they always Perry Bands? Well, Spunk was Calgary. Okay. When I, I left Penticton, I think at 17, 18, and uh, I took my van, I took it with the PA that I had and moved out to Calgary. And in back then there was bands playing everywhere. There's like 30 bands. Every uh, pub had a band and they played cabarets and on the weekend downstairs or upstairs or wherever the cabaret was in the hotel. And so there was like a lot of, lot of uh, competition and it was really great competition. So the band I was with there was called Spunk and I think we lasted seven years, six years. Then I got an offer to go to Toronto to join Moxie, which was a hard decision for me because I was the leader of Spunk, the lead singer. You know, I, I started the band and then I said to the guys, I got an opportunity, I got to leave. And I don't think everybody was happy with that, but, you know, I did it anyways. <laughs> uh, remind me of that because I got to talk to you about something. Charles, can you bring up, there's a black and white picture of Mike with Spunk in there it's towards the bottom of the picture grouping i think i want to watch you to put it up it's right beside the moxie picture i think do you know where you're you know where you're playing there mike um absolutely i don't i mean it could have been anywhere we played a lot oh i know where it was i think we played with uh we had some great opportunities i think when groups came through town it might have been we might have been on stage with like triumph or something you know oh I mean? cool like, like we had an opportunity, we got called to play some of the shows. Um, and Calgary was a fun town. I mean, probably still is a fun town, but back then there was so much music. Uh, it was everywhere. It was awesome. Oh, the prairies were full of it. One of, one of the biggest unsung hero towns. And it seemed like nobody ever left there. The musicians were incredible. They never left was Saskatoon. Saskatoon had some of the best musicians I'd ever seen in my life, and they never seemed to leave town. <laughs> No, Mick, your bad trauma was from... Well, Sh well Shama. Or Shama. Shama, yeah. When I met you, I was in Shama, yeah. And uh, and we were all from Sault Ste. We all went to high school together, but we never hung out there. We just knew about that's each that, other. That's right on the border, right? Sault Ste. Marie? Yeah, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, right across the water, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you guys came out, to, I think you came out to Vancouver at some point, yeah? Well, we, yeah, well, what happened was uh, Brian Armstrong, the drummer, left early with a band called Barney, and they ended up backing up the Fabulous Platters. Right. Um, and then with the Guam, I remember there's this big article in the Sioux Star with Brian Armstrong and Guam going, oh, my God, Brian's made it, you know. <laughs> and anyway, so Brian came back. Jeff had graduated by that time, and he grabbed Jeff. They went on the road. And then a few months later, Jeff came back and grabbed Michael and I, and we went to Suriano's Restaurant in Sault Ste. Marie, which is where all the musicians hung out. And Jeff says, I've got this idea. I think it'll be a super group. I want me, you guys, and me and Brian to form a new band. And so... I, so that was about a year before I did it. And I, I got a job and saved all my money so I could get my plane fare and all that stuff. Flew out to Vancouver, we rehearsed for four days and went on the road. Great band, bang. I still remember that. Everyone used to want to see you guys. You guys were fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember you seeing us when I think Loverboy was just starting and you came out to see us play an outdoor concert at Simon Fraser up on the hill. Interesting. I probably did. I remember yeah. seeing you at the Caribou uh, Caribou Pub. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they had a lot of 
bands playing through there. That was kind of part of the circuit, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Caribou Pub was like a major concert. It was like one step down from the Commodore in those days. It was such a big room. Yeah, because I think it held like 1,800 people or something. It was fun. Yeah, it was a, it was a great it was a great place. Um, but anyway, I was going to remind you. You said something about a hard decision, and I'm, I'm sorry to dwell, dwell a little bit on this. But I, uh, I I was in trauma, which was an offshoot of Shama, which was Trooper and Shama put together. So I'm in trauma. Very successful band. It breaks up just as Jeff Neal by that time, who had replaced Paul Dean roughly in in Streetheart had street had broken up jeff comes back to town and we formed this new band with bernie Aubin from the headpins called paradox and all of a sudden trauma's calling and they want to get back together again and i'm struggling and i was having the worst time and you called me at my house one day and talked to me for an hour just about about you know mick you know sometimes decisions are really hard and you have to move forward if you look back it's not a good thing and you, you really you were like a real brother to me you know it was such a it was such a nice thing for you to do because you uh, we didn't hang out or anything you just called me out of the blue it was a really nice thing oh well that's cool that's cool well you're a good friend yeah well that's uh, that was just such a, a wonderful moment i you reminded me when you talked about the uh, the spunk and moxie thing so can you uh, charles can you bring up the moxie picture please certainly Second. You'll see the name. Oh, there you go. So okay. now how many albums did you do with those guys? Just the one? Just the one. And uh, that was enough for me. These, uh, the, you know what? These guys had a, had a click. I was, I didn't fit into their band as well as, as well as it could have been. Like I wasn't the right guy for that band. I was doing melody and they wanted to do some, something different. And then, the, the heart, you know what the in, most interesting part of Moxie is? When they called me in, I was so excited to get the offer. I, I flew out there and it was like, a, I guess, an audition. And then they said, we got to write some songs. And I said, okay, let's get started. And I hadn't really written many songs. I was just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. I really learned to write songs with these guys. And it turns out that I contributed to every song on the album. And it was interesting. That's what got, got me writing. So I got to hand it to these guys. And I had three years and we played all over the place, but there, I could see no growth happening. So I said it was it, it, it was time to go. Once again, a hard decision, but I just left and I had some money saved up just enough to kind of get me across the country. And uh, so that's what I did. And that's, you know, that's what I did. Well, Lou Blair, who had the refinery back then, he, he basically was a real support for uh, was it paul at five minutes did he take paul under his wing and then you came into the fold is that what it was absolutely paul was was hanging out with lou lou, lou and paul go way back to the old cannery days okay. um, in vancouver and that was before i i moved down there so i was kind of still an okanagan guy and paul and lou you know hung out together and made decisions together and they were in bands together i think that's where kind of Lou started his management ideas. And so they go way back. And when Paul was in, in left at Christmas, which is a really nice Christmas present, uh, he comes home for Christmas and gets fired from Streetheart. Uh, he was in a pretty bad situation uh, mentally. He was, you know, he was kind of crushed. So Lou was taking good care of him and, you know, making sure he had a, a enough to eat and place to practice and, he was all by himself when I met him. I couldn't believe it. I said, this is the loneliest guy in the world. It's like I yeah. could have done a movie. He was the loneliest guy in the world. 
and I kind of peeked my head in after a Johnny River show at the refinery. Right. And as I heard him on the way out, I, I heard somebody blasting on guitar, and I, pe- I peeked in this little half door of this giant warehouse, and Paul Dean sitting in the middle of this empty warehouse on a soda crate, playing into a ghetto blaster, just grooving and riffing and playing, and he, he looked over, and he could come on in, I guess, you know, and that's it. And we've been together ever since. <laughs> so you never knew each other up to that point? No. Never well, aside, aside from the, well, you probably told him the story that you auditioned for him once. <laughs> well, Paul wasn't in the band back then. Oh, he wasn't? Oh. No, it was Duncan Meekle John and the Redivos and uh, Matt Fernet, actually. Wow. Uh, Duncan, of all things, he just became a friend of mine on Facebook. <laughs> well, Duncan and I go way back. He's from Penticton. Oh, is that Great Canyon River Race was from Penticton. Oh, okay. That's where they started. See, I always thought they were an Edmonton band. Well, they went to Edmonton after. You know why? Because the music scene was so interesting in Alberta in general. Every every city, like Red Deer, Calgary, Lethbridge, and Edmonton, it was so many bands players, 15, 16, 30 bands in each town. And you could go from, you could play in Alberta all year long and you'd just be busy as heck. And the crowds were incredible because there was all these young people working the oil fields that had tons of disposable income. Exactly, and you could get uh, like five beer for a dollar, so nobody complained. Oh yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember when, like going back to Shamo. We rehearsed for four days, and we went for, for three weeks to Port Alberni and played at the Barclay Hotel for three weeks. <laughs> and then from there, we drove straight to uh, Red Deer, Alberta, and played the Park Hotel in Red Deer. And we got in, we were totally exhausted because it was just such a long trip, and we had to set up and tear down, yada yada yada. And we get in there go upstairs, shower, come downstairs and start playing. And the place goes ballistic. Like it was like they were carrying us back to the stage on their head, like overhead. I'd never had that happen before. And, oh, and, then, great. Yeah. and then Jeff said, hey, buy the band a drink. <laughs> Five tables of booze come up to the front of the table. And none of us drank. That was the funny thing about it. That was such a clean living band. Oh, that's oh. fun. That's a great story. Yeah, uh, but um, okay. So uh, let's, so, so you guys with um, with that was the beginning of Lover Boy. So you and Paul start writing now. Right around that time, I remember hooking up with um, uh, Dennis uh, Marsenko. Dennis Marsenko. Oh my God! I hope he doesn't see this. He'll never forgive me for forgetting his name. But um, so Dennis, we met. There was Mother's Music, I think. And there was a restaurant beside there, probably a Denny's or something like that. I remember having lunch with him and he said that he was working with you and Paul on this new project. That was the first time I'd heard of this new band. It wasn't named yet. Right. We didn't have a name. And we weren't even going to be a band. I had a bad taste in my mouth. I was heading to to California, to be honest with you. I ended up not going, but um, we never had a name of a band. We weren't even going to be a band. We had, we both had a kind of a bit of a bad taste in our mouths about bands and how kind of restrictive they are until we started talking. And, and we both kind of agreed on the fact that if we took our time and found the right members that would actually be able to hang out together and be together for the long haul, because it takes a long haul in our opinion at the time, uh, you know, long haul group of guys to make it because it's a tough business. Right. Mm-hmm. So we wanted people that weren't quitting and joining up and quitting and quitting. So we took our time picking the right guys. And we also wanted uh, 
a certain kind of expertise out of these guys. Like we tried out 18 drummers. And even though Paul was let go from Street Hard, I knew Paul wanted Matt Fournette to be the drummer. Mm-hmm. Even though we tried 18 drummers, we even flew a guy in from Philadelphia. Um, and you know what? He was great. He could have played for Gino Vanelli. He was fabulous, but he wasn't a lover boy guy. You could just feel it. So we just said, thanks and see you later. And, and uh, we never really had a drummer in Calgary. We just used pickup drummers and me. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I know Bernie Aubin even played with you guys for a short while, I imagine. Uh, Bernie Aubin was the guy who used to come to rehearsal hall when we finally moved to Vancouver. And, um, and so did Brian McLeod. <laughs> Brian's a, Brian was a great drummer. I don't oh, know. I love Brian's drumming. Yeah, and so he used to pop by all the time and drum for you know a three-hour session. We'd have a lot of fun. We'd be grooving stuff and playing songs and trying stuff out. And 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 Bernie was one of those guys too. I think Bernie would have probably loved to be in the band, but there was a couple of things that uh, weren't right with his playing and, and basically I kind of left that up to Paul because Paul was such a crazy guy about groove. Yeah. All it, all he wanted was groove. He didn't want any stuff, just groove. I've, and I've jammed with Paul and I've jammed with Matt and I know why there's a synergy there. Yeah. They yeah. both, they both feel back of the beat. Yeah. yeah and, that, I, and that's why it works with those guys. Yeah. I, I yeah. totally I, I do a lot of things without the band, like for a charity function, if I'm traveling, and I'll get up and play with the band and they say, we got your songs down pat and they play them and they just don't feel the same way as Loverboy no. plays. You no. know, Brian real hard. And, you know, I got to hand it to him and it's a charity event, so I don't make a big deal about it. But in, in my heart of hearts, I go, geez, that just wasn't the same as Loverboy. You know, I put one of those together that you sang out in Calgary at the soccer center. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that was that was a pretty cool event, actually. And thank you for doing that, by the way. Oh, that uh, one really. Don't get me wrong. That was- <laughs> it's okay. I wasn't in the band. I was just putting it together. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Um, so uh, we're talking about, oh, you were talking about putting the band together. And I remember at one point you had Jim Clench playing bass in the band. God, that's a great story. Jim was in town and we hadn't uh, officially had a, by the, way, the- by the way, people, Jim Clench was the bass player for April Wine. He's the one that wrote and sang Ooh, What a Night. So, okay. He's that fabulous guy. A great singer, great bass player, great guy all the way around. He was a real good friend. There was a uh, an open window because the bass player that we really wanted was going to university in Winnipeg. And he said, I got to go home and talk to my parents and make a decision. I got to really think hard about this, you know, because you quit university to join a rock band. I mean, it doesn't make sense, really. Mm-hmm. So he thought it through. And while he was doing all that back in Winnipeg, we were still rehearsing in Vancouver. And one day Bruce Allen calls me and he says, Mike, get the guys together. We're playing tonight. And I go, where? He goes, in the Coliseum. He goes, <laughs> And I said, really? I said, our first show is at the Coliseum? You know, this is crazy. And I said, you know, we, we, all we play is our own music. He goes, whatever, just get up there and play for half an hour, 45 minutes. Um, so we did. And uh, at the time, Jim was practicing with us because he was nice enough. He was in Vancouver visiting somebody. And he was practicing with us. And, uh, but he'd only been with us for a few days. And I, I said, Jim, can you play with us? And I said, sure. So we're on stage and all of a sudden, 
turn me loose starts and I look over at him and this look on his face is like a deer in headlights. He just was completely lost because it was just a keyboard and hi-hat intro. Right. And uh, all of a sudden, I walked over to him and I lean over to his ear and I go, boom, da, boom, da. <laughs> <laughs> boom, da, doom, da, doom, da. <laughs> right. And then he goes like this, I got this. And he just real professionally just leans forward, walks right up to the front, spotlights hit him, and he boom da boom das, right? And <laughs> you know, like what and every song we kind of had to give him a little hint on how to play it. And talk about pressure. I mean, and you know, a KISS fan really doesn't want to see the warm-up acts. But you know, oh that like, you're backing up KISS. Yeah. Oh my god. That's our first show. Christ. <laughs> November 19th, 1979. Oh, my God. Wow. Now, there's is, a guy. Thank you. For so, okay, so obviously by that time, uh, Lou, Lou Blair had become your manager, had now, is now co-managing with Bruce Allen. Well, Bruce, Bruce. Uh, is that how it worked? I don't know. That, that is how it worked. Lou was our guy who was helping us to do everything. And basically he was managing us. And he said to us, you're, got, you're not going to really do anything in Canada unless you hook up with Bruce Allen. I'm going to see if I can't make that happen. And when he did, I imagine most bands would have just said, thank you, Lou. You'll always be a friend of ours. We're going with Bruce Allen like you suggested. That's what most people would have done. Paul and I looked at each other and went, Lou Blair's got to come along for the ride here. Let's make him co-manager and, and insist that he does that. And that's what we did. And Bruce has never co-managed with anybody. So, I, and you know Bruce. Um, if you don't know Bruce Allen, he speaks to manage BTO, and I think he manages uh, Michael Bublé now, manages, um, what's that guy's name, Brian Adams? Just a couple, <laughs> of, a couple of little acts. Yeah. But uh, I was going to say, it's funny you say that because <laughs> a similar thing happened to Shama and we didn't take the high road. Uh, Lou, Blair, Lou Blair got us into the, uh, got us into Vancouver where Bruce Allen sat front row center at the body shop and invited Shama into his office the next day to manage. And we said goodbye to Lou. <laughs> so I guess karma bit us in the ass because we ended up firing Bruce. Good career move, huh? Oh, jeez. I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall for that meeting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. The would have been should have. Uh, Bruce wasn't always easy to deal with because he had his ways of doing things and he was firm about it. But he also, when he ran into Paul and I, he had his hands full because, you know, we made a lot of moves and, and we talked it over a lot of times. So a couple of times he came flying across his desk trying to straggle me. And luckily I moved out of the way and we're still friends today. But, you know, he was one of those kind of managers where if he didn't really like what you were saying, he'd probably want to keep, you know, he wanted to let you know about it. Well, he had a punching bag in his office. That's how he released steam, you know. I remember going in there. He's, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I go into his office and you see, the first thing you see is that great big picture of Robbie Bachman beside this totaled car. Right. And, and, and the punching bag. And you're going... Like, uh, and, and you, what do you want? <laughs> I, yeah, it was, it was harsh. Great pretty, odds. Pretty harsh, pretty harsh. Yeah, but uh, he did good work for us. He got us a really great contract, uh, equal to Michael Jackson. 
uh, on Columbia Records International. He, give me a break, right? Really? Huh? Wow. Yeah. Well, I remember. I remember uh, when Termi Loose hit because Shama broke up, and it was I, for for a period of time after Shama broke up, I had no money. I just bought a house in Abbotsford with my young family, and so I started working in a music store, and I I started playing drums in a weekend band of all things, wow. but. Uh, Anyway, so, uh, and I remember Termi Loose hitting the radio, and I went, because I'd seen you guys play at the Fraser Rhymes. That was before Scott joined. Jim was still playing bass. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then all of a sudden, I hear Termi Loose on the radio, because th- that was the first single I heard. I don't know if that was, was that the first single released in Canada, and then Kid Is Hot Tonight was the first one released in the States? Is that how it worked? You know what? That was back when I had dark brown hair, too. Uh, let me think for a second. <laughs> I thought the kid is hot tonight was the first single, but I, I could be wrong. It could. Well, been. You, you might you might be right. I, I, I maybe Termi Loose is one that stuck in my brain I, at the time. Was, is you know how we did videos for for stuff that right off the bat, like we were the first, we were one of the first bands to deliver videos to uh, MTV, and we didn't even do a video for the kid is hot tonight, which was one of our big songs and still is today. So the kid is hot tonight never had a video. Uh, Turn Me Loose did. A few other things. Lucky Ones did. And I don't know why we got Lucky Ones. Working for the weekend, uh, you know, obviously did. But at the beginning, we had, uh, it was was interesting. I guess the first album was out before much, much, or uh, uh, MTV. And then Much Music in Canada started. But that whole scene is what kind of made us... uh, household names in the United States is the MTV thing. First week they were open, we handed them three videos. Good Lord. They couldn't fill a 24-hour music period on television without guys like us handing them videos. I don't think anybody else handed them three videos just by the the number of videos we handed over. Yeah. That's really why we got so much airplay. Well, that happened with a lot of bands. I mean, I remember, um, what uh, what, what's the name? Rio. Um, Duran Duran? Duran Duran, they were they were totally MTV stars. I, I think they had nothing going on with their album. Then they released that Rio video and poof through the roof, you know. Exactly. So there's yeah. a lot. There was a lot of change. The video killed the radio star thing is so true on so many levels. Was that was that the Buggles? The Buggles, you're right. Yeah. God, I've, my hair may have gone white, but my brain's still there. Yeah, I know you're pretty good, buddy. Pretty good. So. Um, now, it's interesting because I remember talking to you later and I'd said, we well, had Jim Clench in the band. Of course, I looked at him as a rock star because I was a little kid watching him in April Wine. And I remember I said, I remember I said something like, well, how come he's not in the band anymore? And he said, your analogy was so wonderful. He said, you know, Mick, sometimes when you're hanging out with people and everybody's wearing running shoes, but one guy's wearing like high heeled boots. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you said. <laughs> it was like, in other words, it was your way of saying it just wasn't a perfect fit, you know? <laughs> Great that you remember those stories because sometimes I don't, I don't remember a lot of those stories, but I'm really happy that you're remembering it and telling me. It's very entertaining. Thank you. Well, it's certainly your sense of humor and, and the way you would analyze something, too. <laughs> So anyway, so now, now after, now after, now I'm going to according to my life story. So now Jeff Neal goes to to play with Streetheart. So now this trauma band, which is Mike, Jim Valance, and Jeff, they need a guitar player. Mike Sicoli asked me to join Trauma. 
So now I'm starting to play with trauma right as the Loverboy second album comes out, Get Lucky. And, and that album, so I had, I had a pretty decent stereo in my car because now I'm working nine till nine every day in a music store and playing 10 till two in the morning in Vancouver every night. So I'm tired as hell, but I'm cranking the tunes on this stereo in my little Toyota. And there's two albums I played all the time. Your second album and Foreigner 4. Oh God, Foreigner 4. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah, they they were they were my they were my two. I uh, I knew that that second album, the second Loverboy album uh, like off the back of my hand. I mean, all that stuff, you know. I just I thought that was just you guys. You know, there's one thing to have your 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 first album do something, but that second album eclipsed the first album. It's that's true. that's what made you guys huge. Well, it was definitely definitely didn't hurt. Working for the weekend definitely did not hurt. Let's cue working for the weekend right now. <laughs> I, I not not the song. We're just gonna we gotta we gotta play the we gotta play this video though. Because <laughs> this is this is one of the best things ever. Remember this, Mike? <laughs> 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 I have I, I have to ask you because I've never asked you before. What was your reaction when you saw this, the first time it came on this on TV? Well, the first time I it came on TV, we had wrapped up a show somewhere, and I was back at the hotel room and having a drink or something in my room, getting having a beer or something. Pack it. I like to pack before I go to sleep, so I put on uh, Saturday Night Live. Uh, just off the cuff, turned it on and uh, was packing my bag. And I sat down at the end of the bed. This this came on just surprised the heck of me. I heard the cowbell and I went, what's going on here? And I watched these guys and I nearly pissed my pants. I got to be honest with you. <laughs> I mean, they're both not with us anymore, sadly. But, oh, my God, that's actually Jan Hooks isn't with us anymore either. She's in the panel there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, like, look at this. <laughs> I mean, that he had no fear. <laughs> he had no fear. I used to be that guy. <laughs> yeah. You and me both, brother. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Well, life goes by now. 40 years. Can you imagine? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, because I, I first went on the road in 76, and I met you in 78, and Loverboy hit in 80, right? Yeah. That was when everything started coming together for you guys? That's exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah, unbelievable. Okay, we don't need this anymore, Charles. Thanks. <laughs> but um, let's. So let's move on with that. So when I want to, I want to jump to almost paradise, if you don't mind, because sure. that was a, that was an incredible. That was a departure. First of all, it's just you, not Loverboy anymore. The band has had success. Now, is that that's just after the second album, wasn't it? Or was it after? I think it was '84. So it was a little bit after the second album. Maybe yeah. A year. Year after, year and, I, and I forgot up until researching this, I forgot that Eric Carmen wrote that song. I love Eric Carmen's writing. Oh my god, As he's fantastic. I was handed the song. Bruce Allen said, "Pick Reno. I want you to do this song. Tell me if you love it. I think it's going to be great." And he hands me this kind of demo of it, and uh, and he says, uh, "You can pick anybody you want to sing with it. You know, any any girl you want. It's just let me know." And immediately, I didn't even have to think about it. I just turned around and I said, I want Ann Wilson. So right. he says, I'll, Bruce says, I'll get on it. So he got on it. And while, while Loverboy was touring, uh, we had a day off. And I was in the Chicago area. 
uh, and Hart was also in the Chicago area playing. So we met at a, a studio in Chicago called Pierce Arrow, and the producer Keith Olsen. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, he was there, and he's he became a good friend of mine, and he's rest in peace as well. A oh, lot of that. But anyways, fabulous producer. Um, it was kind of a fun, uh, interesting uh, chain of events because uh, Anne didn't show up. She was like over three hours late. At the point, Keith says, let's call it. Let's try to do this some other time, everybody. And I said, let's just wait a little longer. We've been here <laughs> for three hours. Just, you know, give me, you know, just give it another half an hour. <clears throat> and then she showed up. And she was a little disheveled. She said she'd had a, a, a fall in, in the shower or something when she was getting ready. And she, she hit her shoulder or something. And I said, well, come on in. He says, let's just take it easy here and relax. I said, I closed the curtains. So we were kind of doing a private thing, sitting in the studio. And I asked him if they bring us out a few beer. <laughs> Typical Canadian, right? <laughs> and so Anne and I sat and had a couple of beer. Right face-to-face -face chairs. I wanted her to be comfortable. And after about, I don't know, 45 minutes, I said, do you know the song? And she said, yeah, I know the song. I said, do you want to give it a try? And she says, sure, why not? So I said to Keith, Keith, roll it. So he, he rolled it. We stood up and had one microphone facing each other. We sang the whole song once. And Keith went, thank you. What? With his hands up, you know, like this, you know, like, thank you. And he went, that was unbelievable. And, and we were done. Get out of here. One take? One take. Holy crap. Because that's, that's a really good vocal from both of you guys. And I think there was this nervous thing going. I was nervous about her and she was nervous about me. I didn't know she would be nervous about me because I don't think that way. Right. <clears throat> But it was Ann Wilson from Heart, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, I was kind of freaking. I was trying to hold it. Now, had you worked with Heart before? Did you guys tour with them at all? We had, we have played over the years with them a few times. No, yeah. I'm talking about previous to that moment. Yeah, we did a thing. <clears throat> pardon me. When we ran through there, there was a thing that ran across Canada. It had a name, like the Great Traveling Rock and Roll Tour or something. It was Lover Boy, Blue Oyster Cult, Heart, Ted Nugent, and a bunch of bands like that. Mm -hmm. And we were rolling across the country by train, except to go over the Rockies, we ended up flying. Okay. And we played Empire Stadium. It was a big, full crowd, and it was a lot of fun. So we had toured previous, yeah. Wow. Oh, so, that's, so you did know each other somewhat. Well, I didn't really know her. They were the headliners, and I was just the guy on at 4 o'clock. Kind of, you know? Yeah, okay. That's okay. Okay, fair enough. Well, so, because that was such a huge, massive single. That was huge. You know, that nearly broke the band Loverboy up. Because? A, well, I had to have a serious talk with Paul. Paul said, came to be face to face and said, if, if, we, if you'd release this song, it's going to kill Loverboy's career. And I said to Paul, Paul, this is a song that I think sounds pretty damn good. I said, it's in a movie. Now, if the movie doesn't do anything, the song will disappear. If the movie does great, the song will be huge. And if the song is huge, it'll boast, it'll, it'll you know, boost up our career. I said, there's, it's a win-win kind of deal. 
And he, I said, you got to calm down. And then shortly after that, he wanted to record a ballad. You know what I mean? So he yeah. caught on. You know, that's how Paul and I work, though. Paul says, uh, yeah, I say no, and I say yes, and Paul says no. But we always kind of, you know, sort through it and figure well, that it out. Well, that, that was another thing you said to me in that phone call, Mick. You said, Mick, you have to have friction. If you don't yeah. have friction, you're not going to be successful. And that was another, you said that same thing in, in that in that phone call. Amazing. Um, we never did a video for that one either. That's right. You think she would have, right? I mean, it was just, there was a lot of things we missed. You know, we got a lot of things right, but we didn't get everything right. Mm -hmm. So that that came out and it was a massive, a massive hit. And so did that, did that boost Loverboy's popularity? Did you get more calls to do things as a solo? Never did anything solo with it. It was just boosted our popularity. Everybody just went, because it said, you know, Mike Reno from Loverboy. It wasn't yes. like a Mike Reno of the, you know, past. Loverboy. Yeah, bring, was, bring, bring that up, Charles. In the middle there, you're going to see Loverboy with Mike and his red bandana. And to the right of that, you're going to see Mike and his lovely wife, Kathy. Yep. Uh, and they sing this song. Actually, go to the next one, because there's no trim on that one. Yeah, let's do that one. Now, where are you guys singing this song? That's Kathy and you singing Almost Paradise, obviously, because she comes up during your shows sometimes to do it with you, correct? I think this, yeah, it's correct. I think this was a picture of her and I singing on a German tour. Oh, um, yeah. Go to the next picture, Charles. Yeah, we did a tour in Germany with uh, the singer from Deep Purple, Ian. Uh, there's Rick Springfield and I. Yeah. And you know Kenny, Kenny. Oh, Lundle. Kenny! Oh God, Kenny! He's there too. Eh? Jeez. <laughs> this gal, and this was some gals in Florida. I remember where this was in uh, in that city just south of uh, Jacksonville. Rick Springfield. Rick Springfield <laughs> came out to. Sorry, go ahead. St. Augustine. It rained so hard in St. Augustine that night that I said I was in my hotel room, and. The parking lot of the, the hotel, you can see it, I, it was like a river. And I said, there's no way anybody's going to be coming to this concert. And it was one of those bowls that was partially covered, but you could all the sides were open. Mm -hmm. And it held a lot of people. I walked in there, the place was packed. And I said, okay, let's do this. I'm, I don't think I've ever been wetter in my life between this, the sweat and the lights and the concert and the humidity. It was like unbelievably uncomfortable. We we had we had a concert in Anchorage, Alaska, like that. It was raining so hard. I went, "There's no way they're going to have it." Sure enough, we went out there. Everybody's wearing all these, got all these things hanging. They're holding up plastic and stuff and umbrellas, and they're all out there just getting soaked. And yeah. then all of a sudden, the sky broke and it was sunshine, and everybody stripped down to bathing suits and halter tops and stuff. It was like <laughs> it would switch like that. Anyway, yeah. the, I think it's the next picture, Charles. Uh, the one, the rock classic. Uh, that one. That's the one. That was a cool trip. Yeah, we did 14 shows in 18 days. And every show was in an arena, and we had full light, sound, pyro, <clears throat> and a 47-piece orchestra. Oh, my God. That must have been incredible. With five backup singers and, and a rock band. And the rock band was heavy, and they were very, very good. <clears throat> this was one of the highlights of my last 10 years right here. I bet. <clears throat> it was just a lot of fun. Well, just hey, be my state. Mike, did you share the stage with any of these? So you had like a combined stage during the show? It was, um, there were three songs and then I came out and sang two songs and then 
behind me, Kevin Cronin sang, came out and sang two songs. And and then uh, I think the uh, Sweet came out and sang two songs. And then uh, it was kind of one of those things. And at the end of the night, we all kind of did uh, uh, the big classic uh, Deep Purple song. Smoke on the Water. And we all kind of switched up lines and took lines and sang with each other and had arms around each other. It was really fun. How was Ian Gillen? He's fantastic. Getting older, but fantastic. Yeah. What, what a voice that guy had back in the day. Wow. Yeah, he's a, he was the gen, he's a gentleman rocker. <clears throat> he walks out in kind of a, a white shirt with a, uh, a, a kind of a scarf around his neck and, and a blazer. Oh, yeah. And after one song, off comes the blazer, and then up goes the next song, up goes the, the cuffs on his shirt, and off goes the tie, and next thing you know, he's just kicking it. Yeah, he's, yeah. He, was, he was really that's, good. That's cool. That's cool. And the picture there in the middle, you're singing with? John Elway. Yeah, that's the one that I, I I was I was saying to uh, John John Shields, our producer, that he'd enjoy this picture. And of course, I, I said the name wrong because I'm a terrible sports fan. Um, you know what? I never used to watch football, and now I can tell you all the names of the players on the teams. Um, <laughs> and it's because of the COVID layoff, right? I just right. Uh, I ended up trying to give do something, so I went, "Oh my God, this is kind of fun," and then now I'm kind of hooked on the NFL. So what was what was this picture? Where was this at? Do you remember? Yeah, this is a fundraiser in Denver. He was still playing at the time, and I got him to come up and sing. They said, uh, "They said there's John is really kind of shy, but once you get him up there, you'll have fun with him." And he wanted to. I got him to come up and sing "Working for the Weekend" with me. Okay, oh, and it was, it was for a fundraiser uh, sponsored by John Elway. Fantastic. Of Denver um, Broncos, by the way, just so everybody knows. Yeah. Sorry, you, you cut out on me. What was that? Denver Broncos. Just, just in case you were wondering who John Elway is. Oh, right. Okay, fair enough. And he That's was one a, of the quarterbacks. Uh, Charles, there's a picture to the left of Music Express magazine cover there you'll see. Can you pick up? Yeah, right there. Ah, that's a good one. Yeah. Tell me all about that. Well... Right beside me, with my, I got my hand on John Cafferty. Beaver Brown. Yeah, and remember him when he sang The Dark Side and Tender Years and all those things. Uh, fantastic guy, great writer. He was one of my best friends, actually. And his wife's right beside uh, uh, Terry Lee. And right beside her is Jim from uh, uh, Survivor, Jim right. Pederick. Yeah. Oh, cool. Jim Pederick. Uh, it's been one of the, the biggest songwriters in the business. Really, he writes songs for everybody. Thirty Eight Special, Sammy Hagar. I mean, the list goes on and on. <clears throat> and him and I write songs together once in a while. We actually wrote a really great song for the new Top Gun. But I'm sure they had lots of uh, people sending in music and stuff. And you know, who knows? The new Top Gun may come out with Beyonce singing it, which would be a heartbreak for me. But we wrote him a real rocker and sent it in and produced it and everything. Recorded oh, wow. it. When was and that? It was called uh, "Without a Bullet Being Fired." And when when did you do that? Uh, about a year ago. Wow. Maybe a little more than a year now. Now that I think about it, I was on tour with Loverboy, and I had a couple of days off, four days off. Instead of flying home, I flew to Chicago, and uh, we went right into the 
to his over to his place and we started I started writing the song we started writing the song we wrote it and next day we went over to his studio and he had a bunch of musician friends we recorded it and then we mixed it I was going to ask you getting back to almost paradise now now the track was pre-recorded they so they knew the key you guys were going to do it in before you got there I, I suppose or was the band there with you it was a real bed bed track a, a basic track it was just kind of drums uh keyboards and just a tiny little bit of guitar, but I don't think they changed much. That's the music in the in the track really is isn't a big huge music thing. No, you notice it's really kind of simple, very simple. Yeah, yeah, some nice nice keyboard pads and stuff like that. Yeah, right. Wasn't overly produced. Um, I thought it was produced perfectly because it really featured the vocals, right? Yeah, well, that's that's probably why it's sort of timeless. You can still hear it on the radio now, and it doesn't seem out of place. You know? Yeah, cool. You know what's cool about, and I, I say this in, with great respect for a lot of things, but I hear Loverboy on the radio a lot of times. I pull over because I get so excited, and I, I turn it up, and I go, oh, my God, it still sounds great. In my, yeah. in my, in Absolutely my it does. It does. You know, it hasn't, it hasn't like gone to the, the waste paper basket. Well, you guys, now here's a whole other thing about Loverboy that most people don't know, that Loverboy was very integral on Vancouver becoming this huge recording scene because you guys working with Bruce Fairburn, that's where all these people started going, we want to sound like that. This is true. I and, then, like and then all of a sudden you got the Bon Jovi's coming in and the Motley Crue's coming in and all these people. And Bob Rock went from being your engineer to, you know, who, you know, the superstar producer he is now, you know. Hey, tell me about it. Mike Fraser now does ACDC albums. He was the second engineer, the guy who basically changed the tapes and got coffee for everybody, made sure everything was tidy, set up microphones. That was that was uh, Mike Fraser. Now he's doing ACDC albums. Producing. I know he's going to be on our show. Their album was number one last week. He's fantastic. And that yeah. new album. Great. I listened yeah. to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, I, yeah, Fraser, it's incredible. But he was so fast. I, I've never, you know, I've actually never worked with Mike. I've only heard stories. Uh, a friend of mine was saying they were struggling with a mix, and at Little Mountain one day, and all the faders they gave up. All put all the faders down. He said Mike Fraser walked in. They said, "I'm having trouble with this." And he went, "Oh." And he looks at the thing, looks at the track sheet, and goes. And they play it. It said it was almost perfect. Just from him eyeballing it, he knew what was going on. You know, he's just got one of those magical ears. I, he's got the Midas touch. Him yeah. and I play golf together. We, we're good friends, and I, I love Mike. He's a great guy. And you know, Bob Rock, another great friend of mine. He's so busy now. It's hard to get a you know. It's hard to ever to get a meeting with him. But he's a fantastic uh, talent as well. Oh, you know? no kidding. I, Fabulous yeah, well, Vancouver's produced a lot of stuff, man. Jeez, you were part of that, weren't you? I think so. Uh, we used to do stuff like the big vocal things like, you know, whoa, living on a prayer, you know, stuff. And oh, then we'd go to the studio and it would be like uh, the cult or something. And, you know, they'd want to be, they'd want some chants in there. So we'd go and do hand claps and chants. And there'd be like eight or 10 of us around the microphone. You record that 10 times and it basically sounds like a uh, hundred people, right? Right. Well, I, I remember loving every minute of it. Didn't you guys try it with all your road crew? You had to scrap it, I think. <laughs> I think we got a hope. I can't even remember, but it, that was another one of those ones where we got everybody singing, you know, just 
Mark LaFrance was on a lot of records. Oh uh, yeah. He was like the go-to guy. He could say, I think he could sing higher than anybody in town. He used to sing the ultra high stuff. He's probably on about 10 fabulous, maybe 10 or more fabulous records. Oh no, like, more, more like hundreds. It's hundreds? Oh well, yeah, hundreds, yeah. I stand corrected. I was going to say, I remember when you ran into, um, oh, what's his, what's his name from, uh, uh, um, Flying on right, you got this love and that I like. Uh, yeah, Nazareth. And you ran into the lead singer. They, they. Oh, I know what it was. They had heard the Headpins album because I think what somehow there was an angle. Uh, the guy from Nazareth was producing Streetheart or something, and somehow um, I think Ted Awaziak laid the demo on the guys from Nazareth through him. And so they went, oh, my God, Little Mountain's this great studio. So they they come to Vancouver to record at Little Mountain. They can't get the sound, can't get the sound. So they go to, to Outlaws, and Brian there. Cloud's sitting there having a drink. And he walks up and says, so we can't get the guitar sound you're using. You're getting, how'd you do it? He says, and Brian says, well, what kind of PA you got? <laughs> I used to bring a full PA into the studio and play and standing in front of it uh, <laughs> like a full concert PA. But anyway, Brian, you, I, Brian Cloud was a very talented guy. Really oh, yeah. Deep, really deep. Did you know that he won a Juno for keyboard player of the year? Really? He was a drummer on a lot of records, he, uh, he, you know, and then he went on to play with uh, Chilliwack. He did a lot of the writing and everything, but he won a uh, for keyboard player of the year for one. And then I think he, he almost, he got nominated as drummer of the year. I don't even, and then guitar player, of course, that was his forte, Too Loud McLeod. He was a super talented guy. And did you know that he was almost an Olympic figure skater? Yeah, I know. Men's mixed, mixed doubles. Yeah. No, 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 uh, no, it's not. That's, that's tennis. No, he, he did tennis too. Uh, he was a, a, an athlete for sure. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. He had more talent in his little finger than most people have in a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I miss him dearly. Yeah, yeah, we all do. We all do. Well, me, me him and Brent had a band called The Foreskins, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and our only gig was in Abbotsford, right in the middle of the Bible Belt. <laughs> I remember played, we played in Abbotsford one, one night. Uh, we had a, a, a two or three night gig there. I can't remember the name of the place, but we were playing away and people were throwing ice cubes at us from the side of the stage. And, and it got us so pissed off. We played even better. And by the end of the, by the end of the weekend, people couldn't get in. I mean, there's a lineup to get in. One night we went to pick Maddie up uh, in Paul's old Burgundy Plymouth. And uh, he couldn't get out of bed. He had food poisoning or something. And so we look, I looked at Paul and I went, we got to do the show. Anyways, our equipment's all set up. Plus, if we don't do that show, we're not going to get paid this week. So we raced out to the thing, set up the vocal mic on a boom stand, and I drummed and sang all the Loverboy stuff. And wow. I, was so, I was so tired after the after the set, all, all three sets, that I had to be carried to the car. I mean, well, well I mean, you talk about LaFrance having a good range, but boy, you, you hit some pretty good notes with Loverboy. I tried my best. Oh, I mean, that's, that scream alone and turn me loose is like iconic. Do you know that was never there? That was uh, recorded, put away, and almost mixed. Probably not mixed, but recorded and put away. And back then, 
you know, to do a song, you had to put up a different roll of tape and you had to align the, uh, the line the machine and then you had to bring up the mix on. It was a big deal. It's like an hour and a half deal. I went in one night and Paul was doing some guitar. Uh, and I said, I said to Bob and Bruce, I said, can you put up, turn me loose? I want to sing it again. And they went, get out of here. Go to the barn. You, you, you're finished. You, you're done. I said, no, I really want to do it. I kept coming back in the room and go, could you just do it for me? And finally, they said, okay, Paul, take a break. And they did it. And it took them an hour and a half to set up, you know, the, the tape. Right. And, and I went out and sang it. I changed a bunch of the lyrics and I threw the scream in. And all the people in the studio, like Bruce and Bob and everybody, they just went, holy shit, where did that come from? And they just went, that's amazing. And then I walked out up front of the studio to get a breath of fresh air. And I looked up and there was a full moon shining down. I mean, I just went, wow. That, yeah. really, that was a magic, that's a magic song for that. That's cool. What a great thing. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, you can tell that's a Paul, that's a Paul song. It's got so many similarities to uh, the Streetheart song, you know, just the well, build up of the keyboard and the, and the bass riff. I started that song on bass. I drove Paul crazy. Paul looked at me one day. He said, if you play that fucking bass riff one more time, <laughs> I am going to strangle you. And I said, well, why don't you play some guitar along for contra? I said, I'll, I'll show you how the drums go. And then, you know, I said, and then the bass comes in and then you come in. Let's also, do this. So it came from your idea. Absolutely. Wow. And, isn't that amazing? I always thought it was the other way around. And then maybe the arrangement and the way we recorded it was kind of Paul Dean because I really like what we did with it. With the oh yeah, tension the tension of the intro of the keyboards and the, that note, this kind of disjointed notes that kind of come. I don't know if it's one note or about five notes, but played on an old fashioned uh, uh, Yamaha analog Yamaha. Yeah, yeah, because it's it, got that weird portamento that does that. Actually, he plays that. And I know he plays it live now. When we did the gig down, when we did the gig down in um, in the states, um, he uh, I remember he played that. Uh, oh, there's my wife sneaking behind there. <laughs> um, um, we played that gig down in Phoenix, Arizona. Remember, there was us and you and Trooper, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I remember seeing the intro, and there's there's Doug up there with a, like an M audio keyboard or something because he just travels with his, you know, his little Mac mini and just has the keyboards on call, but he's, he does nice. the whole thing by himself. Well, he's such a gifted player though. My God. Yeah. He could play. I said, I find he got like 12 years of, of university trained keyboard playing. And some of the best songs are dug, 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 You know, it's like, come on. But that, but that the intro that I, that obviously it's his that what the heck is that song called? What's it about to do? That's take me to the top. Take me to the top. Oh, that intro is just unbelievable, and the way the bass line, Scott's bass line, works against the keyboard is just magical. We had trouble with that song. We had uh, we were rehearsing. I remember at Matt's house in the basement in Surrey. And we're playing away, and Matt just threw the sticks down, and he goes, what is this? I'm not going to play this. And he, he said, I don't get it. So he took off, went upstairs, kind of had a little bit of a temper tantrum, which is fine. He would admit that. And Paul looks at me, and he goes, gives me the nod. He goes, 
because him and I always I always used to play the drums. Paul likes the way I, I drum. Right. So we we took a little break and then I hopped back on. I said, play that keyboard part again. And then I just kind of gave it the old Charlie Watts. Just right. right. Which is all it required, right? Exactly. And, and Maddie, after a little while, he heard it from upstairs and he comes down and he goes, that's fucking awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then he comes over and he goes, he goes, out of the way, you know. And I, and he sat down. We never had any problem with that. If we didn't feel the feel, we'd either explain it to somebody, try it ourselves, change it up. You know, you played with songs, right? Mm-hmm. Why well, I, I um I remember I was doing some work with Doug one day or something, and I I remember seeing a live thing of him doing the sax solo in that song, and I said, "How come he didn't do that on the album?" He says, "I don't want to talk about it." <laughs> I guess it got erased <laughs> by mistake, and so Paul had to do it on guitar because he was gone or something. Isn't that what happened? You know what? It was always just a guitar thing. Paul, um, he didn't play sax back then. It was something he got into doing and then wanted to do it live. So we used to find parts for him to do. Oh, oh, okay. That's it. it is, it, it, that's my recollection of it. So he was just, you know, but he wasn't playing the saxophone. We never really had saxophone at the beginning. Well, we had saxophone on our first album. It, it was, uh, I think it was read between the lines at the very end when we went into that reggae part. Mm-hmm which is one of the deep, it's a deep song. I don't think it was ever a single or anything, but at the end they got into a sack, but we brought in like Keenly side or somebody for that. Oh, okay. Well, Doug's a great sax player. Now I actually did a Christmas album back in the nineties and he came in and played soprano sax on two songs. He was just, it was amazing. And, oh, and not to yeah. mention the fact he had a temperature of 102. He was sick as a dog too. Oh, that's drag. Yeah. yeah. Fabulous, fabulous entertainer, yeah, really great artist, so talented. He's yeah. doing a lot of cool movie work now with documentaries and starting out to do movies and stuff. He's, he's always he's always doing something. Yeah. Okay. So let's get back. Let's get back to Loverboy story. So now you guys, when you first, so let's say your first show was with Kiss. So now that was before the album came out. Obviously, that would have been seventy nine, as Scott said. So the album right. came out, what, at the end of 79 or was it early 80? Early 80s. We were celebrating 40 years now. Okay. Um, and the band just, or the Columbia Records just put out uh, a, a red vinyl album. And the thick vinyl that they're putting yeah. out now in red, uh, you know, red like the pants. Um, and yeah. it's cool. Quite a neat deal. I got one. It's pretty pretty cool. It sounds pretty good too. So is that your ass on the Get Lucky album? I'm sworn to secrecy on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Somebody, it's somebody's ass. It because it was a controversy. Because because it was the janitor's ass. Hey, janitor, get over here. I seem, I seem to recall that Paul was the one that used to wear red pants on stage all the time. So there was people talking. It could have been Paul. It could have been Paul, could have been me, could have been uh, the photographer's daughter. You never know. <laughs> Fair enough. So, okay, so now the, the album gets released, and what's your first tour? I'm, obviously, you probably went out and backed up a tour. I remember you talking about going out with um, with Journey at one point. That was 80, 82. We both had our biggest albums out. They had a, We had uh, uh, Get Lucky, but... When we first went out, we went out with Kansas. Oh, okay. 
and I was a huge and still am a huge Steve Walsh fan. Right. He's one of the best singers in in, in rock yeah. for sure. He, he, he got, I don't know why they're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But anyways, unless they already are, but they, they deserve to be. What a fantastic singer. I, I couldn't believe that we got on this tour. The musicianship of Kansas, the way they were when we toured with them in 1980, was unbelievable. The big stage, the sound, the, just the violin and the, the guitars, and it was just amazing. And some of the best songs, you know, Dust in the Wind and, and all this, you know, Carry On. You know, I was just like, I I'd try to watch every show after we played. But back then we were traveling in two cars and we had to head out to the next town. We've never been so tired in our entire lives because we played one town. And after we played the show, we'd try to watch half of Kansas and then drive to the next town almost all night get a little bit of sleep in the back seat kind of thing. Mm. So that was a, we were really paying our dues back then for sure. Yeah, no kidding. And so, so you went out with Kansas and so when, when does, so how did, I, I haven't, uh, forgive me, I haven't studied where your first album went in the charts. How far was it up the charts? The second album did better than the first, is that correct? I got a picture of it, I should have sent it to you. It's, it's number three. Your first album? Yeah. Is that in the States? Yeah. Wow. So that was that, your your first album went to number three. Good Lord. And somebody recently just sent it to me and I, I took a picture. I couldn't believe it when I was myself. We were ahead of we were ahead of Warner. Uh, we were ahead of the cars. We were ahead of everybody. It was crazy. I, wow. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I have it like right here. I think I took a picture of it just so I, I said, are you kidding me? And the big and, singles, the big singles, Kid Is Hot Tonight, Turn Me Loose, and what else? It was probably a third single. Which was it? I don't think there was a third sing single, but we did release Lucky once. Oh, okay, right. As a video. And yes, I, I saw that, that. I guess that makes it a single, but I don't think uh, Lucky Ones was officially a single. But... Yeah, we had two, two, basically two songs off that first album that were big. And then your second album hit, and it was like, good. That, that I remember Jeff Neal telling me a story. He was in Streetheart at the time, and they had just done an album. I forget which one it was, and they were really proud of the album. And then they heard, oh, well, Loverboys just released their second album. And there was, there was a little, definitely some tension there, and competition, let's put it that way. You know, especially with Kenny and Paul, and so they put on this, uh, they put on the Lover Boy album, and the cowboy goes, "Don't, don't, don't, boom, ba, ba," and the song was like one minute in, and everybody just sort of went and walked out of the room <laughs> because it was so damn good, and they all knew it. It was just one of those magical albums that just sung, man. Holy smokes! Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you, thank you. I would have been up to be a fly on the wall for that one. Kenny and I became quite good friends over the years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think the animosity, if there was any animosity, it disappeared pretty quickly. Yeah, it disappeared. Um, it was uh, it, quite, quite a nice family. You know, we, 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 I, I personally uh, could say that I borrowed from Streetheart more than a few times because we have, we have uh, Ken Sineve as our bass player for the last 21 years mm -hmm. I mean, uh, or so. And fantastic. He was a street harder and still is. He mm -hmm. does street art gigs too. Um, Matt, of course. 
We got Paul, we got Matt, we got Kenny. I think I'm the only guy, and, and Doug, Doug, of course. Doug and I are the, are the, uh, are the yeah. odd men. Well, because Daryl's still in Streetheart with Jeff now, and, you know, so Daryl Sanibs is still there. Oh, Daryl Gutal, pardon me. Yeah, uh, Daryl Gutal. Every time we play, him and his wife come to the show with some of their family and friends. It's a nice bunch, a real nice bunch. Daryl, he's an immensely talented man, too. Good yes. Lord. And a great singer. He's, like, he's got a great, per perfect pitch, too. He's fabulous. He's great. Right. What did you say before that? Have you heard him, heard him play trumpet? He plays trumpet? Yeah, he plays trumpet. Wow, I didn't know that. You know, I have to, I have to say something. This is, um, um, in 1999, um, I lost my daughter suddenly. And you guys were so gracious. You actually did a fundraiser for my family. And if it wasn't for you guys, we wouldn't have survived it financially. You, you guys did that fundraiser. But here's the real weird thing about it, is that that was in November of 1999, Scott Smith was going to go out on his boat and cancel the trip so that he could do the fundraiser for us. Exactly one year later, Scott went out on his boat and perished at sea. Yeah, that's a, it's, it was, that was the day after our, our show we did for juvenile diabetes at the Commodore. He flew back from San Francisco where he'd left his boat. He was taking it down to Cabo mm -hmm. and he, uh, he, he flew back. We did the uh, we did the uh, the benefit for JDRF at the Commodore. It was the first one we've done it many times since, and uh, I have a picture of it. It was a beautiful picture. It's up here somewhere, and uh, it's all us backstage at the uh, Commodore after the show or before the show. And that was his last show with the band. Sadly, he he had a boating accident, and it was all over. It was a terrible time in my life. Is there anything more that anybody knows about that accident? I heard that the boat the boat basically spun and he was on the top deck and when it came back up he was gone. Well, Is that true? I know, I know exactly what happened if you really want to know. Yeah, I'd like to. Do you know on a sailboat the steering wheel and the compass and everything is all in front and you're steering and there's a compass in front of you and it's a big kind of you know piece that's attached yeah. to the bottom of the boat, to the floor of the boat? Okay. And you're steering the boat, and you're steering the boat. Uh, uh, some waves, they went through these waves at, at this area called the Mavericks coming out, and they have big surf competitions at the Mavericks. And he was a little far left, he should have been a little further right. And the waves were hitting them, and the boat was going from side to side, like almost tipping into the water. And when it went over, like for the fifth time, the whole steering wheel and everything that he was had his safety gear attached to, it dislodged from the floor and went flying out the back and took him with it, took him with it. Oh, that's God. It. And that's the end of it. There's no way that we were going to find him. But I didn't find this out until after a week of searching for him with the Coast Guard. I searched mm. for him every week, every beach they had in, in San Francisco. Well, that's sad because basically he had an anchor attached to him. That's exactly what happened, yeah. So it's sad. It's completely sad. It's fast, but it's, it's sad. Yeah, no kidding. And were there people on board with him down below? Yeah, he had his girlfriend, a girlfriend, and uh, his base roadie, his roadie, a couple of people that work where he worked for us. Shamrock uh, was his name, and uh, his girlfriend Yvonne. The There's time. a picture, Charles, of Mike and Scott. It's a black and white shot, if I'm not mistaken. It'll be right in the. It'll be a center picture. Yeah. 
<laughs> so that must have been around the first album, right? It looks like it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, definitely the rock stars are on their way. Yeah. Well, was... we were trying our best. We were heavily, <laughs> heavily uh, into doing what we could at the time. You know, you look back at fashions and you go, well, that was kind of cool. And then there's fashions nowadays and they're kind of cool. But uh, we never, I, you know, I don't think we were ever known as fashion band. We were known as a high energy band with positive lyrics. I don't think anybody was, except that one time, there's a picture I noticed on your picture collection of us running through the desert uh, in all our desert gear, uh, being chased by scantily clad women. Oh, let's see this. Yeah. Look at those handsome buggers. Huh? Scott's on the far far side to the left. On the also, far left, yeah. Paul's on the far right. Matt's behind me and Doug's behind Paul. Yeah. Now, here's and, the thing. You said something about fashion. I'll tell you, your your headband was definitely a fashion statement because it, it was... It became sort of a catch for. Did you guys? You guys must have sold headbands as as swag. You must have. Still do. We never really did it in the old days. We just did. Did you know how the headband got started? By no. the way, Mick. No, go ahead. When we were playing Vancouver nightclubs, uh, the lighting in the nightclubs is are usually about six feet away. You know the mm -hmm. par lamp, remember? Yeah, and a thousand watt par lamp. So you're under there. You feel like you're a, get a chicken getting roasted at the Safeway, right? Yeah. Anyways, I was sweating so bad the what the sweat was coming down into my eyes, and I couldn't even see. I couldn't see. So, on the break, I cut the sleeve off my T-shirt, and I pulled it off, and I put it over my head, and it soaked up all the sweat. And I went, "Okay, let's go do the next set." And that's really how it started. Yeah, it's just a necessity, huh? Just yeah. <laughs> Leaves from a T-shirt. No, that's cool. That's sounds so like cool. Russia, that sounds like a Rush album. <laughs> <laughs> Sleeves from a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Neil wrote some good lyrics, that boy. Yeah. <sighs> but um, so... Let's let's get into now. So you guys are still touring all the time. I, I have to tell you one little story. I don't know if you recall this. I don't even know if you and I talked at the time, but I happened to be playing with cease and desist, me, Mark, and Brent. We were we were asked to play the Indianapolis 500 every year. And we would play private parties down there. And so one year you guys were playing a street dance. And so here we are in Indianapolis, downtown, and I I walk into this, it was a, basically a free concert put on by the city right and I, I walk in and it was one of those the you know when you get that that national pride because <laughs> i was expecting them to sing the hits the audience right. knew the words to every song you guys played in that set i was just blown away i was almost in tears i'm going wow my boys you know it felt it was one of those moments it was just i was so blown away with that and you guys That's played your butts off too it was great that's kind of what makes it so much fun to play even today is that the crowd is totally into it. They're totally into it. It's part of their DNA. It's part of our DNA. It's just a big, huge, fun time. You know, and that's, that's what it's all about. Music. How many dates a year are you guys? Well, pre COVID, how many dates a year are you guys averaging? 85. Wow. Yeah. That's serious. It's got, we had a lot of shows we canceled and postponed this year. A lot of people who postponed the show, they've postponed it to this year at the same time, which is nice. They didn't cancel. They postponed them one year. 
and then we still don't know what we're going to be able to do. You know, nobody yeah. you got to get vaccinated. How many people are going to want to get in a room with 5,000 people unless everybody's vaccinated? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's pretty, it's a pretty sad and serious thing that's happening right now. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's definitely a game changer for the whole world. That's, that's the one solace we have is that every, there's nobody, pardon the pun, there's nobody immune from this. I mean, every, anybody you talk to in the world, whether it's Paul McCartney or the richest guy or the poorest person in the world, everybody's experiencing exactly the same thing. It's exactly the same and it's frightening. It really is quite frightening. Especially yeah. it doesn't seem to be getting, uh, you know, the rollout that America and Canada both planned. I don't know if there was a plan to begin with because I don't know of any plan to get a vaccine. Do you? Has anybody told you when you're getting your vaccine or where? No, I'm assuming my wife has been fighting cancer, so I assume she'll be much further ahead than I will on the in in the the, the the list. But no, I haven't I haven't seen anything listed as as a, I'm I'm assuming according to my age, I'll probably get it sometime by summer. You know, well, but. We we had a show in March, in March, March. No, we had a show in April in the Bahamas. It's a private, which is always kind of fun because you fly in and do a private show for a couple hundred people of some corporation that are hired lover boy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, we realistically can't think of doing it until we're all vaccinated. I mean, you know, Paul needs a vaccine. I need the vaccine. We all need the vaccine, and you don't want to fly in. I don't even think we're allowed to, you know, I mean, and then we got road crew and so everybody has to be vaccinated, right? It's just, it's going to take a while. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, on a side note, how long have you guys, uh, you and Kathy been together now? 15 years. It's been that long, eh? Wow. Yeah. Unreal. That's, that's been a real successful relationship, you two. It's a, it was, well, I finally found my soulmate. Well, she, well she, you know, the thing about Kathy, she's beautiful. She's an incredible singer and she's got the most incredible work, work ethic. She's fantastic. Keeps me in line, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, I bet. You know, that's, we all need that. <laughs> you know, you live, your, you live your life, you know, hand to, hand to mouth your entire, your entire career. It's nice to have somebody who's got it all together. Exactly. But Kathy, and Kathy comes from a long line of musicians. I mean, her dad was the Elvis of Winnipeg, you know. Absolutely. He, uh, he still sings great. And he's in his 80s. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Ray St. Germain. Yeah. He's a he's a legend in that part of the world. But anyway, I think I think we've uh, pretty much wrapped up. I think this is a great this has been a great time, man. Thank you for everything. Is there anything you guys want to ask, Mike? Yeah, Mike. Mike I got a, I got a quick question. So I understand get lucky. Uh, six Junos, fantastic. That's a record that actually still stands to today. Is that true? That uh, that is true. Um, nobody's broken it, so it's we're still holding that record. That's a, that's a kind of I'm very proud of that. Really. What, what what what? Take us back to that time on stage when you're getting those awards. What was that like? I'll give you an example. Of what happened that night? After a while, people would say, just stay backstage. Don't go back to your seats. And we're kind of wondering why, right? And we, and we thought maybe it would disrupt the TV show or something. Right. And then Burton Cummings comes on and goes, we'll be right back with the Loverboy Awards right after these words from our sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> That's wow. brilliant. Wow. Yeah, so... Uh, 
And who presented your awards? Well, God, I guess it would have been your competition that year must have been incredible. Uh, actually, I don't even remember. It was so long ago. But I do. Uh, yeah, I, I don't even remember. I don't even remember who gave us stuff. It was like we were handed stuff from everybody in the industry. We wanted to walk out of there with six, six awards. It was ridiculous. Yeah, was that was the good. second album? Uh, yeah, I think so. So that would have been in like 83, 84? I could look. I've got the Junos right here. Oh, let's see what those bad boys look like. They're in the cupboard. I don't even keep them out. Here's one. This is for uh, Group of the Year 1982. 82. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a funny looking award, really. Yeah. But it looks like Leaning Tower of Paris or something. It looks like one of those monoliths that keeps appearing on the internet these days. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them in the drawer here. <laughs> I keep them down. I don't put them out. I don't know why. I don't have any of my albums up either. I got a bunch of records. I never put them up. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just, I never put them up. Is that a picture of your parents behind your head? <coughs> yes, it is. Oh, wow. You want to see so, that? Yeah. So that was... Now, were they born and raised in Victoria? Yep. Well, my, my dad was born in Poland, and he came over just before the war. I guess it was time to get out of Poland. Good know. idea. And then my mom was born in, in Yorkton, Saskatchewan. Oh. Here they are. Steve Ronowski. So your older brother Steve was named after your dad? Yes. Wow. And, boy, your mom was sure pretty. Yeah, they, I thought she looked a bit like... Uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Mm. Yeah, she's a pretty girl. Oh, your dad's a handsome man. There was just some. There was something about those old pictures that it, people just seemed to have so much class in those days. I guess it's because pictures probably cost so much that you did your best to look good in them. You know. <laughs> yeah, it was a different kind of photography for sure. They took their time. It used to take a while. They'd set you up. They'd get the backdrop. They'd get you look. And then I think some of these pictures they were so old that they actually colored them in a little bit, gave you a rosy cheek thing. Yeah. That's what my dad looks like. It's black and white that had a bit of coloring in it. Yeah, yeah. Sort of a greenish sort of hue thing going on. So what are you doing? Are you are you writing these days? Are you, how are you keeping yourself occupied? I'm working on some songs right now. I have uh, a song I'm just about ready to sing. Paul and I song. <clears throat> and it's a pretty interesting thing. It's kind of all about being on stage and working with the fans. Mm. Uh, the lyrics are, and it'll be fun. I'm going to probably sing it this week. And uh, I've got, I work with another guy named Daver. I don't know if you know Daver. No, I don't. The, he's a guy that uh, him and I write songs and we, and I go to, I work with other uh, artists. I try to write and produce other artists when I can, but <clears throat> that's what I do musically. And, and now that uh, we've been kind of put off the road, it gives me a chance to do some of those things. I I used to be a little too exhausted. You get home, as you know, on Sunday night, and then you head out again Thursday morning, right? right. <laughs> That's generally how the touring goes these days. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when it, Monday, you're, you're dead tired Monday. Tuesday, you're starting to come around. Wednesday, you can do a few things, and then Thursday, you're gone. <laughs> right. 
But now right. we've been home since uh, almost uh, almost ten months now. Uh, February 29th, which was leap year last year, was our last show in Vegas. We, we my, uh, my, yeah, my actual last show was March seventh. Yeah. yeah. Where, where was the last show? My last show was actually at Blue Frog Studios. I played with, um, uh, yeah, uh, we did a dueling pianos act. Me and Andrew Johns. We did a oh, really? couple nights stand. It was it was good. Andrew Johns. I don't know if you've ever seen him. The guy's a freak. He's so talented. I love him. He's a good friend of mine. He's a oh yeah, guy. yeah. Hello, so Andrew Vernon. Vernon. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he's um, so that was that was our last my last real gig. I had last year was going to be a banner year for me. So it was. It was had to swallow it. Yeah. Now we're all swallowing a lot of stuff. We can't, uh, you know, you can only do what you can do. Right. And right. now it's basically one person in the family goes and gets groceries. Everybody else stays home. Yeah. It's, it's a crazy time. It's, it's, it's never happened. And it's to us, uh, our age, our people of our age, it's just being shoved upon us and we have no choice, but to accept it. Yeah, exactly. And, um, uh, with you, you did an album a while ago with Adam H. Did you not? Yeah, we did it in 2000. I'm going to say, I thought it was 17, but I think it was 2007. Yeah, I think it's, it's been a long while. Where does the time go? I most, a lot of people thought that was one of the best albums we ever did, but um, I'm, I'm reminded that generally people like us, and Foreigner and Sticks and Ario Speedwagon and Cheap Trick and everybody. It's easy to, you, they won't take anything new. They, it just kind of goes into this no man zone. Uh, they won't play it on the radio. People are not buying stuff anymore. They just listen to it or steal it. So the whole record business is kind of switched up. So at the time when we did oh. this record, there was no nobody buying stuff. And if we played it live, people hadn't heard it. And so they would go, Play all the stuff we know. You know, you could just sense that they wanted to hear Termy Lewis work for the weekend, the kid is hot tonight. And we're playing some new songs. And we loved playing the new songs, but until you until they're like until people have bought the record and, and listened to it in the car and they realize it and they sing along. It, it was very hard. It's very hard. And classic rock radio won't play anything that's that has that has to be twenty-five years old mm. or they won't even it so the whole thing is there's really no place to play new records and i know i just listened to the acdc album like we were talking earlier and i thought it was a great album i don't know how it can even get registered i mean because nowadays there's no purchase very few purchases so they, they call it spins or they call it listens and the whole thing's just distorted and weird yeah it's it is crazy yeah i sorry i i lost you for a while i went off did you did you guys was did you catch everything Mike said, you guys? Yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, because I because I I went offline totally. I missed everything, but I I guess I'll listen later. <laughs> We're talking about you. Man. It's okay. Yeah, that's good. That's good. They make it happens to people our age. <laughs> he he dozed off. Yeah, <laughs> I just I just had myself a little nap, you know. It's called a senior moment. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> But um, yeah, because I was going to ask you something too, and then you, you were going into a story, and I thought it. But anyway, go ahead. I got lots of stories I could tell uh, you. I, I know. 
But the thing is, you were talking about the Adam H project, and I know, like, I've been with Randy Backman now for 20 years. So there's there's been so many releases that Randy's been done, and I've been part of, and all this stuff. But it, it it you go out and you play a few songs off the album for a few months, and then they just come off the set list. You and know, you, pull, you never pull, play them again. Then you pull out the old 14 song set list from, from exactly. The one they know every song. I mean, you, Bachman, you know, he's got so many songs. Yeah. I was, I was trying to promote him recently. Somebody asked me to say a few nice words about the Guess Who because they haven't been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland yet. Right. So I did this little piece just up here in this very same room where I just went, I named all the songs that I grew up to. And I said, you got to, you know, you got to get these guys into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean that's fifty years now since those guys came out. Fifty. Yeah. That's unbelievable. And was a part of that, a big part of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Randy's well, Randy's a double hitter. You know, there's not many people that have had, you know, two number one bands in their life. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? You know, now David Grohl, now there's a freak. He's had two number one bands doing two totally different things. <laughs> I don't know. They're, 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 yeah, you got a point there. Yeah. Um, so with with. Uh, Getting getting back, you were talking some stories. Anything come to mind you'd like to share? I don't know. I got lots of stories. I remember when I I, I remember when I got called to Los Angeles by Brookheimer and Simpson, and they were producing uh, all the big movies. And at this time, they were producing a, a movie called Top Gun. I got called to go to the studio, Paramount Studios, and they flew me down from Vancouver. And it was like Monday. I went through the gates, down to where they were, up the stairs, into this office, and they said, you can go right in. So I went in, and there's this big office. They got two desks, one at each end, and a popcorn maker. And you could smell fresh popcorn popping. They walked across past each other like two ships in the night about five times before one, they both stopped and looked over and said, can we help you? And I said, I'm Mike Reno. You wanted to have meet with me? And they go, oh, Mike, Mike, come on down. Come on over. We want to show you something. And they took me over. Like, they're just these geniuses that just all they can do is, you know, all their ideas are just going all day long and they're writing it down and doing movies, right? So they show me this clip of this Black Beauty Porsche going up the hill, uh, chasing a motorcycle up into this like little log bar cabin thing up in the hills of Malibu or something, wherever they were supposed to be in the Top Gun movie. And Tom Cruise is standing at the jukebox and he puts a quarter in. He goes, and then they, they put push pause and they said, can you write a song for that right there? And I went, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. I says, so when do you need it by? And he goes, Thursday. And I went, you know, it's Monday, right? And I flew down here from Vancouver. He goes, yeah, can you have it ready by Thursday? And I went, Jesus, guys, come on. Talk about pressure. I says, yeah, I'll get you something. So I phoned Paul, and we were working on a song. And uh, he set up the studio, and I flew home, and I went from the airport to the studio. And we cut Heaven in Your Eyes for the Top Gun soundtrack. Wow. And um, 
that was it was quite an experience. And we gave it by Thursday. The guys went, thank you. And they used it. So that was a huge hit, too. It was a big hit. We did a video for it and everything. It's it's, it's one of the big songs of Lover Boys catalog for sure. Wow. Isn't that weird? Like and and, and such a rush job, too. Like, you know, it's incredible. I can't believe I did that, because if you really think about it, I'm talking to him Monday. By the time I got back, it's Monday night, recorded it Tuesday, mixed it Wednesday and and got it. And you could have to send it. This is back before you could email masters and stuff. And yeah. even today, you don't want to email a master, really, I don't think. Probably yeah. some will get lost in the transfer. So you had to send it down by a rush type. Yeah. And they kind of went, well, they did it. You kind of think, I don't know what they said at the other end, but wow. I bet they but they're happy they got it anyway. Now, do you think that the reason, just a thought that came to mind, because you had done Almost Paradise, they were familiar with you. Absolutely. So that, that led to heaven in your eyes. Absolutely. And I kind of looked at Paul and I went, you see this ballad thing, I don't think it's going to kill us. I think it could make us. Because there's a whole, we were kind of, you know, we were hard rock, high energy positive lyric rock band four on the floor you know boom 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 yeah ballad was something that we you know was put every you know foreigner got have ballads yeah cheap trick had a big bunch of ballads uh ario speedwagon have ballads yeah. you know why don't we have it and now so now paul laughs about it he goes yeah i was a bit of an idiot back then you know we just joke i said i talked to paul all the time wow They'll kick kicking ideas around. So we got some songs on the go. What we do now, Mick, is we finish the songs. Paul mixes them up and even sometimes does a, a lyric video. Uh, he's got a pretty good system going up at his place. And once he does that, we just used to put it out on our social web uh, network, uh, loverboyband.com. Quite a, quite a good website with all kinds of fun stuff to watch. And we put out the new songs on our own uh, system. We, we just basically offer it as a uh, as a thank you for being Loverboy fans. Yeah, we'll be linking all that stuff in this as well, so that people will be able to access all that stuff from this, from the from the podcast and from the YouTube site. So, awesome. yeah. Um, well, that's great, man. Any other questions you have, Scott? Before we close? Yeah, Mike. Real quick, what's your favorite Loverboy song? When it's over. When it's over, yeah, that's the one you love to sing the most? It's kind of a singer's song. You know, you really got to get into it. Yeah. That's the one I like. That's the one, one I like. Once again, the second album. Once again, second album, yeah. Yeah, that album, that album was magical. It was really good. I don't know. It's like you guys really hit your stride there. It was usually the first album is the best album. The second one, people struggle because they've worked all their lives for the first album. You guys seem to be, it got better. You know, which is, you know what it is too, because when we came off the road, we went the next day into the studio. We were like seasoned, you know, like, you know, like, a, you know, like it's like sports. We're playing the playoffs here. So we went from the airport basically home for a couple of days and then into the studio and we just started tracking. So we were like ready to go. We were physically ready to go. We were tuned in. And so you guys were writing the songs on the road? Yeah. And would you try them at sound checks? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
So that that was your rehearsal time as well, because really your your time is so precious on the road. It's like, good lord. So you know, the hour we had for sound checks was the time we used to try new songs, new parts, different things. Right. Right. Have a little and fun. Good old cassette tape to keep keep your ideas. Make make sure you have them all remembered. Exactly. <laughs> So funny, I would say Paul McCartney was talking about how they never had cassette tapes or anything like that back in those days. And they said, I think it just recently said, you know, we weren't trying to write memorable songs. We were trying to write songs that we could remember because we couldn't, we didn't have any tapes to rely on. So because they were trying to write songs that they could remember, they ended up writing these great songs that everybody remembers. It's a weird sort of synergy. That is great. Yeah. McCartney's yeah. fat. He's fat. Always yeah. has. Yeah, it never never stops that boy. Anyway, thanks a lot, Mike. It's always um, great talking to you. You're 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 one of the you're one of the great guys. You just always have been fantastic singer, incredible career, and you're, you've always been down to earth and really kind to me, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Mick. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys, especially yeah. you, Mick. Take care, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, Give a yeah. hug to Kathy for me. You bet I will. Thanks, everybody else too. Hey, thanks for joining us. Check out our many other podcasts featuring vignettes and full episodes from a growing list of recording artists and other music insiders. And please like, share, and subscribe to our channel so we can bring you more great content from this and many other shows we're now producing. Available both on podcast and video on demand.